Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and today's guest is the hilarious Beth Stelling. If you don't know Beth's work, bethstelling.com is probably the place to start and you can find links to her podcast and her Twitter and all her social media. But of course, you can also, if you happen to be in the US, watch her brand new special Girl Daddy on HBO Max. It is so funny. It's such a great special it was recorded just before the pandemic hit and you couldn't record in front of people anymore and we talk about that a lot on today's episode so beth stelling uh, make sure you check out all her work and uh, i hope you're really going to enjoy this episode if you are a subscriber to the patreon page patreon.com slash philosophy you are getting this a day earlier and ad free that's uh, what we try to do for our patreon subscribers and of course at the moment we are charging towards that five thousand dollars a month subscriptions and if we get to that then we will release two regular episodes per week the brand new episode for patreon subscribers every sunday and on thursday a catch-up episode with the previous guest Uh, and for anyone who isn't a patreon subscriber of course those episodes will come out monday and friday so we will do those regularly as soon as we get up to the five thousand dollar mark but at the moment we're doing them every now and again as we get closer and closer to five thousand so you can go to patreon join up for as little as a dollar per month i've noticed a lot of people who uh i had more shows cancelled uh <laughs> this last week uh, my shows in queensland and my shows in western australia both got cancelled and i noticed a few people have come along and sent me a message on the patreon page to tell me that they put the money they were going to spend on seeing me live uh into the patreon for this podcast for a while and i super appreciate that as it's my only income uh at least for another month after that, I will say that my uh, television show, Gruen, is coming back. So October 14, if you're a fan of Gruen, uh, then you can watch that on the ABC from October 14, which brings me to VPNs. I talk a little about VPNs in the start of this episode, and this is not a paid ad. Uh, although I think if you want to get an Express VPN, which is the one I have, and you use the code TOFOP, T-O-F-O-P, they will know that our podcast sent you and uh, it might lead to more sponsorship. We might have an ExpressVPN sponsorship for philosophy at some stage. But um, this is just a personal endorsement because I love my ExpressVPN. It means I can log on to the internet incognito. People aren't tracking what I'm doing. And it also means that if you want to, say, access Beth Stelling's uh, stand-up special on HBO Max, you can set your internet to America uh, log in there, still pay for it and do all those things that you're meant to be doing. Uh, but it shows up that you're in America so you can watch that American entertainment that is not available to us here in Australia. It also means if you're listening to this in a country other than Australia and you would like to watch Gruen on ABC iView, you can get an Express VPN, put in the code TOEFL, and uh, then you can set it to Australia and watch it, of course, on ABC iView. There you go. Just a personal endorsement, something I do myself, but also... If you put in the little code TOFOP, then uh, they will know that we sent you there and uh, we might get a little kick back in return. But do it regardless, even if you don't put in the code, but put in the code. <laughs> anyway, Beth Stelling is hilarious and I think you're going to enjoy this episode. Uh, talk to you again soon. Welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And this is how the show starts. I ask the guest who they are. So who are you, guest, today? I am Beth Stelling. And I am a comedian 
and writer. Do I go on? Do I read my credits? I enjoy when, like, essentially, this is a very lazy podcast in some ways. Because, <laughs> like, I don't like to do research because I always feel like <laughs> if you research somebody, you end up just getting them to tell the stories they've already told other people. I always find that very boring. Secondly, I kind of already know bits and pieces about you because, yeah, you know, we've met and known each other in real life. So... Um, I, I often just go from whatever somebody says in their description, and that's my starting point. So the longer it is, the more we end up having to talk about. But I thought I thought there was enough in that, which was comedian question mark writer full stop, because that's definitely how you said it. Was comedian had a real, real big comedian, and writer was like writer. So what's that about? Yeah. Wow. The uh, the. <laughs> No, you're right. I gave you everything you needed for the next hour and a half. <laughs> no. Um, you know, I think there's like some people who start stand up and their first open mic, they are telling everyone in their life that they are a stand up comic and they have a card. And here it is. Here's that card. And it took me a long time to call myself a stand up comic. I would say. Do you have a, do you have a card? <laughs> My dad keeps asking me if, if I can send him cards so he can pass them out. Uh, I was like, I haven't had cards in a decade, if not longer. I did. I had cards the first year or two. Um, and I haven't changed. No, maybe I shouldn't. I haven't changed my number. Uh, <laughs> so if anyone's got one of those, yep. Charlie, Hit me it's up. like Charlie in the Chocolate Factory <laughs> golden tickets. You still technically have best number. Yeah, but all the people that have it are like living in the suburbs of Chicago with four children. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think like... I said it like that. Just I don't know why. I think it's take. This is my first hour special that just came out. It's called Girl Daddy on HBO Max. I'm sorry that Australians can't watch it. It's stupid. I have no. I'm bummed by that. Maybe sometime it'll it'll. Well, as I explained to you when I was talking to you about doing this, there is a little like there's a thing called a VPN, and this is just a modern day internet thing that everybody has got to get around. I I use ExpressVPN because they're a sponsor of the show and they sent me a free link. I'll, I'll say that up front. But since the free link expired, I've signed up to the year thing. It's like ninety bucks for the year. Okay. And basically what happens is, A, your computer becomes private. So, like, you know, whatever you search on your computer isn't being linked back to you anymore. It's being, like, scrambled in the air and suddenly... So even at the moment, I've got it set to my Sydney settings, but nobody will ever technically know if I don't release this podcast that it happened. (laughs) (laughs) The government is not listening. And the second thing is that you can then set it to any time zone, any place in the world. So... So if I want to watch HBO Max, for example, and it's not like illegal, I'm not stealing it. I'd still have to sign Mm up to HBO Max, but I can set it to America and the computer recognizes it being America and I can watch your special in America. It is the best. If you like entertainment, it's the best hundred dollars you will spend every year is getting a year long VPN subscription. I could not more personally recommend it, but particularly if you're a comedy fan, because so many of these specials are things that end up being geo-blocked that you can't see in other countries. So sign up to a VPN and watch Beth's special if you're not in America. There you go. This That's, was, we've that got was them on like board the now. perfect in 
that was a great commercial. I want one, and I don't need one. Well, I got to be honest with you, they don't sponsor the program anymore, and I paid for my fucking VPN. But I <laughs> like the product so much. Well, I like I liked your special so much that I want people to be able to see your special. Now, this can we just we'll talk a little bit about it at the start because it was must have been filmed very much pre just pre pandemic breaking out everywhere. It was a one one week before. Because Corona was in the air. Well, I mean, not physically. Well, you know what I mean. <laughs> it was kind of being talked about. It was, I remember leaving the show, like the second taping, walking off stage. It was two tapings in one night. And, I, and people were kind of high-fiving me and like being sweet. And a guy in the, in the last row like went like this and reached his armpit, his arm. Sorry, this is called an elbow. He reached his elbow towards me. <laughs> And I looked at him and I said, Corona? And he was like, yeah. So it was there, but I would have never, of course, none of us would have had it if people were at risk. It wasn't to that level yet. It wasn't until the following week when I was in St. Louis and they issued a state of emergency. And I flew home to L.A. and I've been home since. So it was, I don't know if I was the last special filmed before the pandemic, but I think pretty close. I mean, it'd be nice if you were. Yeah. To be honest, that, that could be like, like it's a good hook. <laughs> the last special yeah. film BC before Corona. I know. Was it was it the last gig you did in front of people, or did you do shows post filming the special? So the last time I performed was my special. Until this past Saturday, I did a little backyard show in North Hollywood. I stood in the back of a pickup truck, and people were socially distanced on a lawn, wearing masks. So that was the first time I performed since my special. And I thought to myself, do I really need to be doing this? <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think I have anything left to say. I pretty much said it. I just talked for an hour. I think I just need a break. You, on the other hand, like, I, two things. One, going back to my comedian question mark. Like, I've been getting reviews for the special. Thankfully, like, obviously, it's nice when you get good reviews. And it's been very well received. And finally, I'm thinking to myself, maybe I am good at this. <laughs> so there's that. And second of all, I don't know how you do it because I've seen you now. Like, I feel like I saw, I don't know what the last hour I saw was called. It was like, it was about you flying and. Uh, Will Legal, yeah. Yeah, Will Legal. So that was the last thing I saw. And you just put out a new hour every year and I, can, I can't do that. Maybe it's because the writer part comes in and I'm writing for other things and that slows me down. Yeah, what I promise my audience is, is quantity, Beth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take that as a compliment that I'm quality. <laughs> uh, so, well, it's interesting to me because like, this is the first break I've had from live performance because of that, because of the idea that I write a new show every year and had done for a quarter of a century, like 26 shows or 27 shows in 25 years, you know, and... So that, that had been just, well, that had just been my normal life though. And so the, obviously when Corona hit, the comedy festival was that, so that was the first comedy festival. That would have been my 25th year in a row doing the festival and it got canceled. Obviously it took a global pandemic to stop me doing a fucking show at the Melbourne comedy festival, <laughs> but it's been really different, like for, different for me. Like I haven't done a performance since March in, you know, in Adelaide, the last night of the Adelaide festival there, that was the last time I did a show. And 
we're kind of looking down the barrel here of like not getting back to theatre shows, like big theatre mm. shows, I think, until probably there's a vaccine. You know, that's really the case, you know. So it might be another year still until I'm out doing it again. And for me, having this pause from, you know, being on that cycle has actually been quite great. Like, you know, there's some other big downsides to what's going on in the world right now, but the pause from just that constant sort of now I have to write a new show has been great. So tell me what it feels like to put that hour down on tape. Yeah, you look, you look great. You look better than suddenly... ever. Suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> tell me what it was like for you to dump an hour out on stage, like that whole, everything that's in the brain, you know, out in this way that will, yeah, is filmed, is out there for people to sort of see and consume and review and talk about and then where your brain's at. Does, does it feel... Like, it's an empty bucket at the moment. Like, do you have any sense of what you do next? Or at the moment, is it just like, that's all out there and I'll work out what's next at some other stage? It's not an empty bucket. I don't know if you ever did grunt work. I know you grew up on a farm, but, like, I used to mop floors at my first job and you put the mop in the little drainer and you and you drain it out. And what's in the bottom of that bucket after you've squished it, that's what I have left. <laughs> it's just, like, muddy... <laughs> water <laughs> that like the logic isn't there it's just like i can't drink this but i mean we could throw it on the floor and see what yeah, happens it might have some use. i just feel like that's what i have right. left i i think because because i i think i do have pages and pages of jokes but it's technically all in that those areas so like in my closet I still have my my post-its of of my bullet points of my hour. But those were trimmed and honed and the excess I don't know if it can be a new joke. It's almost like I and I do this and I have done this for years which is I um sort of gravitate towards certain subjects. And so how many more specials can I put out on <laughs> sex politics and food and body image like I I just feel like I I have a lot on that area and I don't know if it's enough to move forward with a new joke on it it's almost like I have a lot of filler left because what I showed you ideally was killer (laughs) (laughs) um (laughs) I think it's like I'm, I'm like looking at it like stuff that I had left over and then it's like tweets and stuff and stuff I trimmed and things I feel like, is this where I'm starting from? So yeah, I'm feeling very much like, what do I even have to say? Because what I put out there was a result of actual passion. Like there's anger and frustration and fear and and silliness. There's a lot of that. I've, like, I've put everything into this for years and honed it. And so now I'm feeling like, I think I said all I need to say, I guess. Because the morning after I filmed this, like I worked really hard. It was like kind of head down, keep going to the point where now when I go back and listen to sets, I'm feeling more joy than I had then. And the joy is obviously coming from having this long break of not performing for a live crowd, but also hearing the fun that they're having. And at the time I wasn't necessarily receiving it because I had my eyes on the prize. So when I go back and listen to these sets out of curiosity, because basically I had this long break before my special came out. So I was doing what you've spoke of, sort of enjoying the break, being thankful that I can take a break, doing writing work still, but 
feeling relieved that everyone has to stop. And so I had to start listening to old sets to prepare myself to promote this special because I was like, what is comedy? (laughs) I need to remember. And going back, I'm hearing these people have so much fun. And I'm thinking, did I receive that, really? Did I actually live that and feel it? And I don't think I did. So if I ever get to go back to that, if we ever do, then I think I'll have a more appreciation for it, for the exchange of energy, since everyone's so cut off right now. But also, I think the morning after I filmed this special, um, being so driven and putting so much energy, time, passion, pain into it, I woke up the morning afterwards, and I was with the guy that I was dating at the time, lovely gentleman, and I just sobbed. And it was like a release. And to be honest, at the time, I didn't feel like I, I did it as well as I have. So it wasn't like I was grieving uh, like that I messed it up and did a bad job, because you saw it. I did a fine job. You did a great but, job. Thank you. I think it was just a lot. It was overwhelming, and I cried. <laughs> I cried. It all poured out of me. And then I put it away. And and it's I don't I say this because I I don't want to be disrespectful of lives lost and struggle that's happening right now, but the choices I've made in my life set me up perfectly to enjoy this pandemic. <laughs> I mean, that sounds awful to say, but like I needed the break and in in comedy we're so driven by each other. You see like I, I, I brought it up at the beginning of this. I'm intimidated by the fact that all you guys in UK comics, Australian comics, put out an hour every year. And so I'm like, I'm naming it. I'm being like, I don't know how you do it. And same with like getting up again and doing sets. It's like, well, they just did an hour, but they're out again. I got to get up again. So when it, the world said, sit down, I was like, thank you. That's all I wanted for years. I mean, it's ridiculous to compare yourself anyway right like it, it yeah. makes no sense of course. what we do to compare ourselves and the idea of when people go oh it's you know <clears throat> Australians gee you all write an hour of new material a year I was like yeah because there's only like six places we can tour to like if we had 52 states we might write an hour every three years because we could drag it round to a few more places but <laughs> <laughs> you run out of places pretty quick you have to come up with a new show so, okay uh, that's true uh, so what was the you know this show I asked people if they you know, have you know, philosophies towards anything do you have a comedy philosophy was there something that you were trying to achieve you know comedically is there something that drives you comedically is there something that when you were like I'm going to film this hour and this is going to be to a lot of people probably an introduction because like often the weird thing is about an hour you know particularly this sort of first mainstream you know like hour like this is it will be to a lot of people, a show for your fans, and then it'll be for a whole bunch of other people, an introduction to you and your work. So the hour has to have a sense of that in it. And it makes sense that it has all those themes that you've worked with for those years, because it's a, hi, I'm Beth, you know, this is what I'm like, this is my sense of humor, here's some of the things that have influenced the, you know, the voice that I have through my comedy. And then you try to distill that into your hour. And I think it's incredibly effective at that. I mean, I think the best compliment you can give to someone in their first hour is obviously it's hilariously funny, but 
it gives a really good representation of you and your comedy and I think that's a really cool thing but what did you what was your philosophy going into it what did you want to achieve I think that it definitely evolved into this but I I guess in general one of my comedy philosophies if I had to name it is do what you think is funny Mm -hmm. I I mean I, I suppose that seems a given but I think sometimes people cater to what they think the audience wants to hear mm-hmm. or what the world wants to hear, what the world, whatever. And to me, I love watching a comic say something so obscure and weird that they think is only for them and getting a laugh off of it. Because whether it's uncomfortable or awkward or there's two people in the crowd that laugh, like to me, sometimes I'm like, if I can nail down something that I think is just me and then I say it out loud and it's like three people, I'll keep it in. Like, that's so fun to me. I love finding those. And it's fascinated me since the beginning. Um, but, yes, so do what you think is funny, um, which, you know, as we know, we bomb. Sometimes it, nobody else thinks it's funny. And you have to let it go. But um, And then this hour evolved with, I would say, definitely from encouragement from peers and friends. And it was in some ways reactionary to specials I was seeing of male colleagues come out last fall. So I felt like we were hearing a lot on Me Too and sex, sex politics from big male superstars. And it was getting under my skin. And so I remember being at Rami's, Rami Yusuf's, and I was talking to another comic I've known for years, a Chicago guy, Uzer Usman, and I was just kind of <laughs> going off on my shit, you know, like I was just like, and this and that, and I don't want to hear that, you know, and he said to me, it was basically, the thing particularly was me being annoyed that someone was basically, a comic was was shitting on male feminists and saying they're only doing it to get laid and this or that, and it's like, no, like, when, when, a group that needs help, like we need their help, so don't call them gay. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> we we need their help, and if they are doing it to get laid, so be it. I would rather, <laughs> I'd rather fuck a male feminist than an incel. I mean, that isn't that the whole point? So, like, who cares why they're doing it? We do need the help. We need numbers. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure some firefighters are just doing it because they know it'll get them laid, but they're still putting out the fires. So, you know what? Exactly. Win-win, as far as I can <laughs> That's concern. how I see it. Yes. So, um, anyway, Ozer was like, are you talking about this in your stand-up? And I was like, no. He's like, you have to. And that was... I want to say December. Well, I got a pen in my hair. That was December um, of yeah, 2019. So I filmed in March, and that didn't really give me a ton of time to work on that material. So I would say minute 5 through 15 is, like, pretty new. And I think that's a, you know, you want stuff to be sort of on autopilot when you're filming because nerves will hit you that you didn't expect. So there is safety in knowing what, you know, just sort of having it come out. But conversely, this new stuff had me like a little (laughs) on edge, like a little white knuckling it. So there's energy in that too. I think that can, that's readable at least. 
because there's nothing more exciting than coming up with a new bit. You can be high off of a sentence. Mm. I thought of like, I, was, I said something the other day. It was I think I was doing it like Instagram live with Burbiglia. We were riffing jokes, and I said, "I'm really close with my sisters. I met them through my mom in the late '80s." It's like I can be high, I can be high off that for like a week. Like ah, fuck it, I wrote a new joke, and it's like ah, sentence. So. I think it's like when you come up with that new stuff, it can fuel you. So it just pumps energy into the, into the full hour. So then I started losing stuff, which is now, like I mentioned at the bottom of this mop bucket. That's like, what am I going to do with this? I don't know. Do I need to do anything with it? So I'm sort of like wrestling right. with the idea now that I'm like, can you just sit? Just chill on it? You know, like I have other projects that I, I can fuel, put my energy and thoughts and time into and... So I'm kind of like that right now. Okay, so I want to talk about this um, uh, show you did in North Hollywood in the backyard with everybody with masks on. Because, like, for starters, I'm, I, look, I am a little judgy, I've got to say, about um, big acts who go out on the road during these times who really don't need to go out on the road during these times. Like, uh, yeah. But... I have definitely some empathy and sympathy for smaller shows trying to survive and comedians who don't have the luxury of, you know, being able to go back to big theatres and stuff who are in their comedy development who need to be able to, you know, get up in front of people and put shows together. So um, I am interested in, like, what that show was actually like. Was it a joyful celebration of comedy happening or did it just feel kind of weird? Well, you're, what you're, you just said obviously makes me think of a lot of different things and feelings, but I will focus on the um, You can talk about all of them. This, this, this podcast goes for over an hour. It's fine. We've got time <laughs> to talk about things. <laughs> well, I agree with you. I have also been judgy in the, you know, because I haven't gone on the road, like I said, in six months and in some ways I wanted to do that and in other ways this show that I did is almost a result of what I just spoke of, which is like that weird little peer pressure, like, well, people are getting up, I should do it. Instead of looking inward and being like, you're fine, right? Do you need to get up? Do you have things that you want to say? Can you not just chill? And fear of, I'm going to lose this gift. I mean, I was there with this another writer and comic who was on the show, Yasser Lester, and he was like, dude, you just put out a perfect special, like, why are you here? And, like... I would just like chill, <laughs> meaning like, don't you feel pressure to get up here right now and deliver something to that level? And I was like, well, now <laughs> I don't know why I'm here, yeah, you know, but I am. So it's just like, it. He's right in a way that's, but but then, then it's scary because what if I can't, I can't I can't follow it up. So there's okay. So there's that. And I'm looking at the comics who were touring, some of them barely comics, but who ended up getting COVID. And it's like, great. So you endangered yourself, you endangered your fans, and you don't need the money. So that was bothering me too. Now, the reason I did this, I think I kind of answered, which felt like fear. Like, should I get up and see if I still have it? I've never gone this long not performing. So it was socially distanced people could come if they were with someone everyone had a mask on um there was no like touching or exchanging of anything um they took your temperature at the door and it was outside so door i mean gate (laughs) um and the gate 
was like automatic. So no one was like swinging and touching a gate. I'm like playing it all out in my head to remember. Um, so temperature, automatic gate, comics walked through the crowd, but then were along the building outside and we all had masks on. The only time we took a mask off, I guess, was um, to perform if you wanted. And they sanitized the mic in between each person. Which is probably something we could just keep. Post-COVID, the idea that you set, like you're doing lineup shows, that they sanitize or change the mic between sets is probably something. The amount of times, and I'm sure you've been in the same situation where you've just been in the wings waiting to go on and like the person behind you is simulating a blowjob by putting the fucking microphone in their mouth or something and you're just like, this is not a safe work environment. A hundred percent. I mean, come on. I guarantee you've been either on radio or same at a show where, cause I'm not someone who like, I don't rest it on my mouth. I don't touch it to my mouth, but I've been close to a mic and smelt it and been like, I can't, <laughs> this has never been cleaned. This is years of men eating chicken fingers and beer and <laughs> bitching about their wives. I mean, the poison is radiating off of this. So I'm like, now in the future, I also was like, I should get my own mic and just show up with it. But I agree. Let's keep the cleaning of the mic. <laughs> um, so audience reaction is I'm interested in because yes. like, so, obviously outdoor shows, like, you know, traditionally all the things that we've traditionally said about comedy, you want it to be indoors. You want the roof to be low. You want everybody jammed in together. You want to be able to see their faces a little bit, not too much, but enough that you can, you know, see what their reaction is. That So even if they're like not laughing huge, you can see if they're engaged in what it is that you're doing. Um, the fact that we, like the our very the ocean on which we surf is the laughter of the audience and we're putting a face mask in front of that so all of these you know things that completely change intrinsically what it is we do talk to me about some of that experience so i was mostly like filled with fear um i had a sort of map of like some i haven't been driven to write about the virus because I have found it or quarantine or whatever it is because I found it to be like how are you going to be original and I don't want to hear another joke about not fitting in certain clothes or being sick of what you eat but it's like so I thought I was next and then the comic who runs it was like no you're not I was like oh okay phew so I was sitting there thinking about what I would talk about and then they called my name and the crowd was like he says she got a special out right now and the crowd is like kind of like very excited and loud and so that made me even more nervous like oh god so they've seen that and I didn't know I was going up so I'm scrambling up there so I didn't have time to be that scared but they and I just named it I was like oh I'm so scared like I haven't performed in six months like you guys think I you just if you saw my special and then they're like Whoa! you know I was like you think I'm just like this cool calm collected person but that took years of practice and now I don't I've, I'm nervous right now I don't know what I'm going to talk about and if it's even good and I basically just named the fact that like trying a new joke is so vulnerable that to, prote- to, to do a whole set of it is insane because normally if you're trying a new joke you pu- you pad it but I am weird about repeating jokes from a special that maybe these people just saw, so I didn't want to do that. And it feels so disingenuous to me. But this crowd, it's, it's tough to say what worked and what didn't because I couldn't tell if they were just loving on me because they liked the special or if they were loving on me in a way that an open mic does that's nice that when you tell them that this is a comic's first time going up. 
So they were so supportive and loud and reactive, making up for the fact that we couldn't see their faces smiling or laughing. And and it was outside, but it was next to like it was next to a field, but there were cement walls uh, on each side of them, and I think that probably helped with sound me hearing them even. Um, so they were like too nice in a way. So I, it's hard for me to to know what works and what didn't, or what will work in the future. And it doesn't really matter because what am I even working on? Right. So then I, I'm presented with the idea then of. Well, would, wouldn't, mightn't you just do this for fun? <laughs> Which is crazy. Because normally I'm like working towards something. And then again, going back to like, do you really even need to do this? Because I'm not doing any road dates. All of them have moved to 2021. Why? Because I don't want to be the comic that's on the road right now. Um, and endangering people. Um, but also, it's just a mix of all of this. Because then there's people doing these out the uh, drive-in shows. And then I'm kind of like, well, you can't argue that. People are in their cars, and if you're famous famous enough to draw a thousand cars to a drive-in, well, then I guess you should be doing that. But then you're still trapped. It goes back to even my ordeal with, like, what's best, stocking up at the grocery and cooking all week or helping some of your favorite stores survive by ordering takeout. Like, what is the right thing to do right now? I'm... I'm I'm doing one more show on Saturday outside on the lawn at UCLA. And I think the reason I took this last Saturday and this coming Saturday are because I have to do Conan on Tuesday and I need to just run the story. And I'm it, that's not enough. Two times in a backyard is not enough, but whatever. So I'm interested in something you've touched on a couple of times is the idea and I've always thought it was a bit of a myth, but I'm not sure. Like, I mean, I've been doing this a long time now, so it's probably a different perspective, you know, than some people who say this earlier on in their careers. But I'd mm-hmm. love to hear what you have to think, which is about okay. the nature of having to do it all the time. Because there's a bit of a comic mythology that it is something that you constantly have to be doing to remain good at it and I've got to be honest even over the years where I've turned around a new show every year I will quite often go you know a month two months without doing a show because I quite like having a break from it in fact I always think I come back better not come back worse but there seems to be this theory this you know it's one of those great comic myths that you constantly have to be working that you constantly have to be getting up on stage to be good at what you Mm -hmm. do where do you fall on that I do not agree with it I was never a comic that felt like, in fact, if anything, I'd make fun of people who were like, you gotta get your reps in, you gotta get up like five times a night. Like, I'm not like that. Because it, especially starting in Chicago, I would do shows whenever they came to me. And I've been lucky enough to sort of always do that. Where whatever comes to me, I take it. I don't like reach out to be like, can I get up? I gotta do this, I gotta, like it's not my style. So I've just been, whatever comes to me, I do. And sometimes that's three shows a week, sometimes that's five shows a week, sometimes that's one. And on those ones, I revel in it. So I haven't been of that mindset that you have to get the reps in every night, multiple times a night. Um, That being said, I guess I just, over the years living here in LA and having the, 
I don't know what you call it. I mean, I worked for it, but the ability to just say yes to shows and have that be my schedule, um, I got used to that. And if anything, I would take less if I wasn't up for it and that's fine, but I was still doing it at least once a week. So now that I don't have it and I'm not doing it, it's definitely presented me with the idea of how much of it do I need, I guess. Because it's coming out in other places. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I spent, you know, way too much time with a guy that I didn't even like. But I wanted him to like me, and that was... (laughs) I mean, this is not even someone I, like, dated, dated. I'm talking about, like, recently, like... I just needed them to like me, maybe because I wasn't telling, having an audience tell me that they liked me. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm like, this guy is so negative. I wouldn't want to be around him. I don't want to be with him. I don't, you know, but I just needed him to like me. Yeah, you, you really had that equivalency of just like, I'm going to win over this tough crowd. Everybody else yes. is bombing on this lineup, but I am going to you know, Yes, when you're bombing and you're like, I'm going to get him with this last one, and you just bomb harder and harder, and the crowd starts to hate you more and more until they're like, leave, <laughs> just drop it. <laughs> is there anything I could have done better? Get out of here. <laughs> Doesn't matter. <laughs> um, so this show is not just about, you know, comedy, but I just like talking to you about comedy because, you know, you, I just watched your special and I wanted to hear all about that. But we talk about, you know, life in general. And so the, the conceit is that I ask people if they have a, a life philosophy of any kind. Do you have like a guiding principle or a set of values or something that you could, you know, talk to me about? I think sometimes, like, yes, we were just talking about comedy and I think it sometimes life and comedy like is like a bifurcation in my mind because mm-hmm. my last relationship before I started dating comics, which now of course I'm off you know, I'll tell myself I won't ever date a comic again. But it was very much like a choice it felt between a normal life of love and maybe marriage and children and then pursuing comedy. And so it felt like that was like the last chance I had to be, uh, have a normal life. I, 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 that was kind of sad, I suppose, but that was when I was, I guess 29 is when that, that ended. And I think I like made the choice to continue to pursue comedy and I've, done that and reached goals that I wouldn't have if I moved back home to Ohio and started a life with this person. So life philosophy, <laughs> I just feel like sometimes I'm living my life for comedy and and what does that mean? Like I'm never the person who's like, hey, Will, I'm in town. You want to go skydiving so we can get a story off of it? Like I don't want to live my life like that either. I enjoy being present and genuine and letting things come and happen the way that they will. But It does feel like the longer I'm here and in the industry and, you know, working in TV and movies, like sometimes you'll see it in in shows that you're watching, like the person's career is onset tutor Mm. and you're like, we need someone in touch with the real world. (laughs) Like we must have a veterinarian here. Okay. (laughs) But you're supposed to like write what you know. And I think sometimes the further you get away from that, like 
the harder it is um, to connect. So I obviously don't want to lose that because I tour over the country and the people that come to see me, I think, are in touch with the, like that sort of normal life, I guess, middle, middle class sort of existence, I suppose. And I remain in touch with it, and I'm within reach with my sisters. Um, but life philosophy, I mean, I don't even know. It's, like, sad that I could only talk about comedy. I went to, I went to a, um, like, I think a lot of my worth is based in this, in comedy. I went to this, like, experiential therapy healing trauma program in Tennessee um, four years ago or something like that. And... We weren't allowed to say what we did. And it was harder than I expected. Because it's how I basically endear myself and say I'm worth something. Like, and I'm a comic, but, but I am act like I'm good at it. Like I do it as a living. That's why it took me so long to even say I was a comic in the first place. Because I was, didn't feel worthy of the title, I think. And so it's not like I'm the person listing my credits for Christ's sake. I'm just saying it's like, it's where I find my worth. And so to not be able to mention it was an interesting lesson. Um, so what, what is your identity? So you've clearly had to think about it then and how you define yourself when you can't say that. And of course, I'd be guilty of the exact same thing. Like there's no doubt that I, you know, quite often when I'm talking about my life, it ends up being a conversation about my work and how my work affects my life or, you know, yeah. Um, uh, you know, I had somebody actually say to me the other day, they said, oh, you know, I don't really know anything about you. And I said, you know everything about me. Like everything <laughs> that, that right? I have going on, I talk about, it's infused through everything that I do. You're just thinking there must be more to me. There isn't. If there was, <laughs> you would have heard about that too. <laughs> uh, I love that. Yeah, I mean, because in some ways, like I want to say, I agree with you where, where it's like what you see me talk about on stage, like that's my life. That's just me. Sometimes to a fault. I feel like I've over talked. I've, I've offered too much, been too vulnerable and had to rein it back in because it was painful. And then I found that balance and making it like less about me and putting a little bit of a buffer there. And that's worked for me. Um, so in, so in some ways, it's like, yes, you know so much about me, like too much. It's too deep. And then, and then in other ways, it's like, there's so much more to me. So it's like, I, I agree with you. And then I would, in the same sentence, you don't want a fan coming up to you and saying like, hey, and like reminding you of a story you've told on stage as if they were there. And it's like, you don't know me. It's like. And then again, you kind of do. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, it's so weird. It's a thing. It's a hard to navigate. Um, no, I, I like mean, like, what? I agree with that also. There's plenty of me that people don't know that I keep to yes, myself. Yes, but yes. it's all pretty boring stuff, <laughs> is my point. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, there's things you don't know. It's just, it's just like a lot of my life is pretty just boring. And I'm not going to share that with you. So, <laughs> but how do you define yourself outside your work? Like, what? who is... Beth when she's not a writer and not a comedian like if those things if you're not allowed to mention those things you know who are you what do you tell people about yourself <laughs> you just this is like the beginning of my mental breakdown will did it um i think I mean, be good for the podcast <laughs> You've seen the special now listen to the I just, breakdown just shave my head on camera <laughs> 
you'd have to do a play by play. Um, <laughs> I think I, I guess like the thing that is at least coming to my mind right now is authenticity. Like it's very important to me to be authentic with people and present. And I think that I'm almost about to relate it back to comedy, which is, I'm, I'm sorry, but it's like, it comes up when I'm doing a podcast and I have to like repeat a joke or because, and I, I'm, I want to like, I'm almost mad at myself right now for bringing it up. Cause I've said it before. The right thing to do would be like to get a laugh on a podcast for listeners. It's just say the joke and then you'd laugh and we'd laugh and move on. But I'm all here like, well, what if they saw this and they know it's a joke? And then they'll be like, oh, she just told a joke like it was in the middle of the sentence. And like, he doesn't know that because he hasn't seen it. And then I'm like, ah! so I think sometimes it's not it's too much. Um, me feeling like I have to like share everything and like explain myself and be as authentic as possible instead of what sometimes would be the better route to go. I don't know. Does that? Yeah. I don't have, think I'm still you, answering the question. Have you always, well, it's hard when you, I can't, you can't make it about your work. It's like, <laughs> because, you know, obviously being in the moment and authenticity are things that are really quite relevant to comedy and what you're saying, I totally relate to. Like, and, it, you know, in that regard that I think that's the case as well. If you go from a conversation in the show like this to dropping it a line for the joke, it automatically changes the entire thing because we're and I think that's why when having some new material in your special actually and now I'm talking about your work so I think it's fine we're back on safe <laughs> ground but it means that because I've always thought that there are two really different states of comedy and one is sometimes a joke will work best the first time you ever do it and part of that is because you are create it's the process of creation right you are in the mm -hmm. moment of creation not the moment of repetition right recreation so like a lot of the time you know we create something and all the joy and the energy and the spark of it is actually because it's being created and then we do it a whole bunch of times we create it a whole bunch of times until the point where we go okay now we can recreate it and what you're doing from then on is you're not involved in the creation process anymore you're just involved in the recreation process and i think if you are doing an entire special of things that you have done hundreds of times like it's an entire hour of recreation but if you've got a bit more stuff that's a bit more new there's still you know some sort of energy of creation in there yeah you just said it perfectly congratulations that was perfect uh, I'll just, if you could repeat that, I'll let it out me. You can. <laughs> uh, it's so true. But I think there is that weird little part of me that, that when I first started, I had all these little rules I had for myself, but one of them really was, I won't repeat material. And that was just be, me being naive because I wasn't a student of stand-up. I didn't watch stand-up growing up. I didn't, we didn't have cable. So it's, it's, I didn't really understand. And when I would sometimes see comics from their act repeat stuff on panel on Conan, or when I would see that, I'd be like, tss, tss, tss. I wouldn't like it. As I, I wanted it to be present and real, but that's very difficult to keep up that amount of material and that, that amount of funny. And so I think I like wrestle with it a little because of course I repeated that stuff to get to what I performed. Of course I did, but it is odd. 
it's like a bit of a battle in my head. And I even learned, from, like opening for Sarah Silverman on the road was a great lesson because I watched her perform her set every night like it was the first time. She's a brilliant actress. And that is a lesson that I continually have to teach myself over and over again. Like they, like it's the first time. And my sister will even tell me like, people go see musicians, they wanna hear their favorite songs, Beth. It's okay to repeat. So it's like those two things are always a battle in my head, which is like all new, get rid of all that. Um, and the pressure I put on myself to do so. It's so like you said you had certain rules when you started doing comedy, like some of which obviously are still relevant and some of the, which, you know, are not relevant. What, what did you, what was the biggest thing you got right about comedy when you first started out? And what's the biggest thing that you got wrong? Because we all have such firm ideas about, yeah, what comedy is and isn't when we first start out. What were you right about and what were you wrong about? Well, yeah, I've flipped everything. I mean, I've, I've broken every rule. So if anything, what I was right about was being prepared, I guess. I mean, I was very, I was very prepared and professional. But even still, you could argue that that's no fun, and that sometimes it's fun to just throw it all to the wind and like make it up as you go. But I, yeah, I said I wouldn't hook up with comics. I said I wouldn't talk about. <laughs> I said I wouldn't talk about sex uh, because I was really terrified of perpetuating that stereotype. And I was like, and I can do it. And I, I don't think I said I wouldn't cuss, but I was like, I'm gonna do it without cussing. And. Um, what else? Oh yeah, and like I told you, I said I wouldn't repeat material. I genuinely thought that. So, oh, and that I wouldn't take up notes. <laughs> uh, you, they, they basically talked me out of having, having my set list and my special right next to me. <laughs> um, what's, what's the, so that's an interesting one because that's less of an Australian tradition definitely is the idea of like taking up notes. I mean, now that we're seeing a lot more American stand up, it's become, you know, part of the, you know, the, certainly the open mic scene, you know, in particular now is the idea of taking notes up on stage, but <clears throat> wasn't really something that I grew up with in the Australian scene. And so the first time I went to the US and I saw people on stage with notes, it did actually do my head in a little bit. I was like, seven minutes. Can't you just like memorize seven minutes of material? Yeah, you, <laughs> you freaking cheat. Yeah. And also it, it's, I, I imagine maybe I'm putting this on you, but you might feel like, well, then what do I memorize it for? You know, like, I don't know. You know, if, they can, if they're just going to still laugh at this guy with his freaking notes, what am I, what am I up here working harder for? Um, it, it became just, it's, it's just more of a safety blanket at times, I think. I don't know. It's funny, though, because you're set... I mean, yeah, look, I, I, again, like, you know, in the special, it's funny to me because the special seems to make such sense in a row. You know, that's the thing. Like, it doesn't actually feel like you could have missed any of it. You know, that if you yeah. just tell it as it's meant to go, it will all come out in order. And how about it's my life? Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you don't forget a portion of Like, when you've written it, and I've written it. That's the, that's the stupid part where it's like, you wrote this, lady. <laughs> the fact that sometimes I can't remember it. Like, even if you were like, hey, do this joke from the special. I might like feel scared right now because it's been just, it feels like it was just thrown away and I'm done with it or something. 
I mean, that's an interesting thing that people might not realise about comedy is that how much of your material you can forget. I remember being on stage in Philadelphia doing like a Friday night late show in Philadelphia, you know, like so when the crowd get a little loose and, you know, it was a big full show and like there's people yelling stuff out, but they're all having a good time. Like it's not a it's not a rough show. It's just like a a loud Rowdy. late night show. And like I had a good set, I'm having a good time. But at the end of my set, like people start throwing it out requests and like I'd never get requests like it's not just something that but I think what had happened was there was clearly a whole bunch of people who'd been like hey we're going to see this like Australian guy at the and had gone on YouTube and like you know kind of just done some research basically for the show they didn't yeah really and know they were like beforehand. we want to hear this bit so so they like, but they're yelling out bits from like 10 years ago that I can't I'm like you do a bit of it and I'll see if I can get the rhythm of it and remember what it was about. But, but that's also the beauty of you being that experienced because there's so much that has to do with just honestly communicating with the crowd, even if it's I'm bombing. I'm not saying you were bombing. I'm saying that comes with practice, I think, because there were sometimes if I had just named it, then the it would have been released. But instead I'm just like, oh God, I'm gonna do the next joke and I'm bombing so hard. And they just white knuckling through it. So the fact that you were like, cause you could have been paralyzed with like, oh shit, what is it? I gotta pretend like I know because it's mine, you know? So I think your yeah. experience is like, that's what's the most fun thing to watch. People love feeling like they know you and can talk to you. Okay, so tell me this. Uh, this podcast isn't about me, despite the fact that it's called Philosophy with Will Anderson. You think, <laughs> like, um, so? Yeah. Why don't you tell me? You, why don't you, you tell me your philosophies? Because I don't have any. I have a lot of quotes around my house. Oh, do but... you really? Like inspirational quotes? I love an inspirational quote. You don't have to be embarrassed about an inspirational quote. This on is this, uh, this is more. This is a. Your, your joy, joy is... is your sorrow unmasked. Yes. That's one that I like. I what like that, making what does dark that mean? things What does that funny? mean to you? Your joy is to, your sorrow unmasked. To me, when I received that from my friend, because he just wrote it in the insert of like Khalil Gibran's The Prophet, and I had never read it before. And to me, it was like, I get joy over making dark things that have happened to me funny and if my philosophy is anything I guess it's like I want to help more than hurt I think like I'm not trying to be edgy I think it's like I'm taking things I care about to try to be like a little helpful or ease it up for someone else and then I guess for me personally probably take a little control over it of what happened to me out of my control so then if I can make it funny and make other people laugh, then I want a little. I, yeah, I'm interested in that because, I mean, the show that we were talking about earlier that you saw of mine was like about something that, you know, reasonably traumatic that happened to me that was beyond my control. Um, that I loved know, how you handled it. That I kind of tried to reimagine in a comedic way, you know, like in a, in a fun way. But that was a bit of a struggle because the actual thing that I went through wasn't fun while I was going through it, you know. And exactly. But I didn't want the show to be me reliving, reliving the trauma on stage every night. Sometimes it was, to be honest, to be able to do it 
properly. You still were very much in the moment. But that to mm. me is like it was a traumatic day, but it was a day. Like it was all the entire incident really and the day happened within sort of, you know, you know, 24 hours. The whole show takes 36 hours. You know, it starts from midday on a Saturday when I leave home and it stops midnight on a Sunday night when I... So I can kind of confine it to that period of time. But there's a few things, you know, along your journey that haven't yeah. been confined to 36 hours. Like how... And, exactly. you know, a few of them played out in public, you know, and, right. and you know... Uh, and continue to. Right. In and so, ways. And so... Like, you know, how, how is, how is that? How do you, you know, like you said, with your comedy, how do you take control of some of those things? What is it like, you know, kind of, you know, a reliving traumas, you know, being reminded of traumas, you know, sometimes taking control of those traumas yourself to, you know, you know, to reimagine them comedically, but not always the case, you know, what, what's that like? Yes. Um, where to start with that? I think I, when I first started talking about it, basically I was, you know, I've always, it's almost like I'm a human, I'm a human with a megaphone that's always on. And if you pinch my butt, I'm gonna scream and I, and everybody's gonna hear it. <laughs> so it's like, you did that to the wrong person cause it's straight up gonna come out of this megaphone. And that's how I saw it a little bit. It, you know, I was in it, I had experienced a, you know, intimate partner violence. I kept it to myself, it was painful, it was hard for me to understand. I felt like I'd been with good partners up until then, why would I choose someone like this? What's going on? And it was short-lived, it wasn't, it wasn't years with this person or anything like that. But it felt like, okay, and they had asked me, in a way to sort of not talk about it on stage, knowing that that's something that I do, uh, talk about my life. And it just got to the point where I was like, I'm not keeping this a secret anymore. And so the way I chose to share it was um, just on my end, from my personal perspective, just to say, hey, this is what happened to me. I didn't make it about anyone else but me. This is my experience. I had a good year career-wise, but this is what I was dealing with, and now I'm gonna talk about it, just letting you know. And then, so there's that I experienced, and I felt like the comedy community supported me in a lot of ways, but of course things were thrown at me that, you know, critically as well. People were criti critical of it, or, and I addressed some of those things in my special, like how people respond and why women go about talking about um, whatever sexual assault the way they do, because, you know, if we, wanted to go through the system it's basically sometimes it feels like uh, a game we can't beat so why would you keep playing and from there it did get spread publicly even larger so that was like a second trauma I didn't expect really like yes I put it out there but then it was it ran away from me big time so in a way I felt comfortable being vocal and then very much felt silenced after it by people's response in the media and publicly. So, you know, a lot of people love to throw around the word brave. It's like, no, I mean, I just did that instinctually. Like, hey, this is what happened. I'm going to talk about it. Happens to a lot of people. And 
then I felt very silenced for a long time. So it took me like the courage came to talk about it again. (laughs) And the way I worked through it was, as I mentioned to you, I went to that healing trauma program and it was sort of like my mom has, has had her own trauma in her life and experienced domestic partner violence. And basically one of the therapists was like, well, would you talk about what happened to your mom on stage? And I was like, no. And the lesson there is like, well, yeah, because it's not my story. But the lesson to me at the time was sort of like, yeah, so why would you do that to yourself? And so it caused me to sort of take a step back and think, what's worth it to me to talk about on stage? Does it help me or hurt me? And years away from it and honestly kind of wanting to ignore it and put it away helped in some ways and then having all these like I mentioned these specials come out in the fall having their hot takes on me too and why women will do what they do and having all these opinions on how women handle sexual assault fired me up to the point where I was like I'm gonna we're gonna have to hear from me on this and (laughs) I mean you know especially after even like this everyone has all these opinions on we can name names if we want it doesn't matter it just felt like I we need to hear this like I guess I for lack of a better term a female comic side of things (laughs) but now I'm better about when I'm getting emotional or upset when I'm asked about it and you didn't just ask me about it like we're having a conversation but I've had a lot of interviews from people I don't trust or I haven't known for years springing up springing it on me uh, if I'm just trying to promote a show even, like out of left field. And it's, it, you know, again, I don't, a lot of the terms in rape culture are, are hard to grasp because it's like, you don't want to be like, like victim, survivor, I'm triggered. It's like, those are all very real things that you can experience or um, associate yourself with, but it's been sort of ruined by the internet in a lot of ways, it feels like. But I'm less triggered now when I'm asked about those things because the truth is I, I just have to say, yes, it happened. I've worked through it uh, and I've moved on. But for so many years, I had the desire to really explain myself and defend myself even. Even if I wasn't under attack, it felt like I, I was in, in those ways. And like I told you before, I was able to sort of channel that experience now with time and knowledge and work on myself and therapy. Um, to complete some of the jokes in this special, um, to sort of, yeah, I guess like almost having like, um, like a future self in mind, like looking, looking over, like kind of knowing better. Um, yeah. Did that answer it? Yeah. And you know, it's interesting what you say about all that because, you know, we are having conversation and like we know each other a little bit. But even I, I asked the question in a way that you could answer however you wanted to answer it. Like, you know, I really, like, you know, dipped my toe into wanting to, you know, talk, you know, if you had some thoughts mm-hmm. around it. And I loved what you just shared with us. But, you know, I don't think it's a, I, I don't think it's appropriate or that you owe me some sort of story about some traumatic incident that happened in your life. I I was reading an interesting blog post the other day by a a sex worker who said, if I could give one piece of advice to 
you know people who know sex workers in their lives even if you're you know you're friendly or supportive of them don't ask them about the worst experience they've had like it's okay to ask a comedian about your worst gig yeah, yeah, yeah. story right but don't immediately go to because clearly if you're a sex worker and you've had a terrible experience it's probably a traumatic experience that you don't want to just relive every time you know somebody is curious about what your day at work is like and i certainly feel the same thing about people who've experienced you know major traumas which is this idea of it's your story to tell but it's not other people's right to demand that story of yeah. you like you know i hope that in the way i ask the question like you know you give someone space that if they have something to say they can say it and if they don't have something to say you can fucking move on because nobody owes you their trauma nobody owes you those things you can ask for them you can in- invite a space where people are happy to share them right. but nobody fucking owes you anything like in that yeah and i think too it's like yeah you did handle it well i've just i've been asked it of course in much more awful and abruptly ways in abrupt ways and like almost like i did owe it to them oh i'm just asking about your very public post and it's like okay well (laughs) you know i guess you know it kind of puts you on the on the defense but i it's 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 difficult because it is such a large there's so many people's opinions and um and it feels like it feels big it feels like a huge conversation but the truth is in some ways we still do need more people's stories and people being open about it and feeling open about it the trouble is that when you are open about it people are watching others get attacked for it and so why would you ever want to be vocal about it or having it be their only thing and saying, well, you know, use your, use your platform and use your, use your power for it. And it's like, well, when I said it, I didn't have that. I was worried I might not work again. It, it was like, so I want to be helpful and others, but it's also just to others and other people and, and be, I have empathy of course, but it's also just not my job to, to continue on with that if I don't want to, I think. So it's just, it's odd. It's, does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah, it does. I mean, I think that, you know, people set out to be a writer or a singer or an actor or a dancer or whatever. And then, you know, they experience some trauma or they, and then there's an expectation from society that they then become, you know, a full-time representative (laughs) for, you know, publicizing that trauma. And you're like, well, I didn't, that's actually not what I got into dancing <laughs> right. to do, you know. Exactly. <laughs> like some, I know, um, so you sp- you've spoken about family relationships like a little bit already in this sh- you know, show. You've mentioned your mother, um, you know, a whole bunch of times in different contexts. Like you and your mum actually do a podcast together as well. So what's, uh, you know, you and mum, are you like, what's the relationship? Where did like, you know, Where's that bond and how did that develop? I think um, in the special, you know, you hear me talk about a spectrum of mother in terms of sexuality. On one side, moms think sex does not exist. And on the other side, there are moms who are like, how was your orgasm? (laughs) And I joke that my mom is in the middle and that she's a virgin. And so I didn't have to worry about that with her. But in some ways, of course, that's true because... My mom isn't my best friend and we don't talk about everything. And then in the same vein, it's like if I needed to share something with her, I could, even if it didn't feel like a a topic for mom and daughter. But so we don't have that best friend 
um, relationship, but we are extraordinarily close. And I think in terms of um, how I am, I, I feel very connected to my mom in, in a way that's almost like I sort of even... <laughs> did you Can you hear that? My neighbor just walked by, like, quacking at his dog. Oh, he probably heard me. He probably heard me saying that. Um, <laughs> but like, so I like to say that my mom and I have like a nice formal mother-daughter relationship. Nothing like too gross or weird. But I could share anything with her, and she is like very much a confidant and sort of, um, I don't know, for lack of a better term, guardian angel in my life. Someone that I feel like is looking out for me. But I also feel like in many ways I've oddly. I'm a lot like her, and I've almost recreated some of her experiences in my own life, especially with partners or romantic partners. And my sisters have done different things in their life for different reasons, but all based on our parental relationship, what we witnessed, and any sort of trauma that may have existed there. So I find that all very fascinating. And of course it makes sense. It's just, to me, having awareness and changing those patterns are two different things. Uh, that's that's such a good insight though because like i think often you know we when we start to recognize problems we almost feel like okay well i've recognized that i have that problem now i guess that's that's, that's sort of it. So, no, now i know why no, i like a, a cold start, cold but... woman uh, <laughs> i mean not me i don't know i don't know what you're into but i just mean like you realize <laughs> why you're kind of maybe drawn towards certain people or relationships or types of love even. It doesn't have to be uh, that you're drawn to a woman who looks like your mom. You know, for me, it's odd. It's like sort of childlike, like like sort of man-child and also sort of um, very intense love, like sort of suffocating. And on paper, that's so not what I want at all. And that's what happens. I'm drawn to it. And then I'm suffocated. <laughs> it's like I'm drawn to that type of person who might have this quality such as my father. And then I'm like, I got to get out of here. <laughs> so now. So love is an interesting thing. Like, I Do mean, you believe in it? You know, one of those. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, of course I believe in it. Yeah. I mean, I believe in it. Yes. Like, I think it's. Like, it comes to the very nature of our existence, which I guess is, you know, it's that time of the podcast where we get to this anyway. But I, I, the reason that I started this show is I'm totally fascinated by the idea of how my practical beliefs about life, you know, that we're probably, you know, an accident in the corner of the universe. And when we die, we go back to being what we were before we died. And, you know, blah, 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 blah. That, you know, I have a very sort of scientific, rational you know, understanding of what the universe probably is, but it is counteracted every single day by all these indefinable things that aren't explained by science. And the tension between those two things is incredibly fascinating to me. And I think that love is one of those things that fits very much into the category because I'm sure that scientists would be like, well, it's an evolutionary concept and we needed to yeah, continue the species. And so, like, you know, evolutionary-wise, our brain develops this idea of, you know, if someone is complementary to you, that it manifests itself as some sort of affection and love and it's so you don't, you know, throw your baby to a dog <laughs> or, or whatever it is, you know what I mean? Like... <laughs> 
<laughs> like, I'm sure there's some uh, science racing, but I think there's something kind of magical and indefinable about not just love, but also attraction, you know, like just, you know, the fact that you can meet people and immediately bond with somebody, immediately feel like you've known. There are... I lost a friend recently. Um, he took his own life, you know, just in the last week. And he wasn't a person that I knew incredibly well, but he was one of those people that in the half a dozen times that I'd hung out with him, I felt like I knew him better than some people that I've known for 20, 25 years. You know, just sometimes you meet someone who you go, oh, yeah, I like this person a lot. I get this person. Um, there's just something. And that's to me, isn't, sciencey it's just a feeling yeah and I, so yeah i believe in it but what's your what what are your thoughts about that i mean let's start with this one and then we'll get to the love bit which is what do you think happens when we die because that sets a little basis for what you believe about the the world i know what i want to happen and but what yeah. i think happens and it scares me which is why i'm scared of death is nothingness black total like I, I used to be able to get there when I was a kid and then it would scare me and I stopped thinking about it but just my mind goes to complete and total darkness black nothing but then I then my mind goes but you wouldn't have this mind to know that it's all black so I think the scarier thing is just in nothing I'm I'm getting scared thinking about it right now I have no consciousness. It meant nothing. I'm gone. Sure, some things will remain, things I've worked on or pieces of work or something that exists on TV. Somebody could maybe watch me 40, 50 years from now if I'm dead. It's like, yeah, that exists. And even people who have made something of themselves fame-wise, they go on sort of. But it's all done and dead and zero. So you have no, you wouldn't know anyway. I think it's just, <laughs> I think it's scary. I don't think there's any knowledge of it because you won't know you're gone. It'll just be done. And there's no like, oh, like looking over it because you're just gone. And you're an organism that died, just like a buggy squashed. So if that's true, like, and you know, I believe it probably is true. Although like, you know, I hope it isn't, but I believe it is. Then where do things like, you know, well, what the things that give our life, you know, meaning beyond the practicality of life, you know, like things like love, things like laughter, where do they, how do you explain and where do they fit into that nature of reality? Okay. So in the same way, I like, I'm not, I am more positive than I think I'm letting on, but but like sometimes, like after my grandpa died and, uh, and my aunt was saying, like, I see him every time I see a dragonfly. And I'm over here like, no, you don't. <laughs> You're just seeing more dragonflies because you decided that, you know, or whatever. That being said, I lost a friend to suicide in December. And that person, like, in this, we, we can't know. I, I have had, we've lost, we're comedians. So I, we've definitely, I've lost like two comics this year and one close friend to suicide. Or I'm sorry, Brody was was not this exact year. But the point is, I don't know if it's just these pe like is it is the life like you can't lump all of them together. I'm just speaking only from my one friend. But you saying that that person you felt like you really knew them. It's like my friend Alex who 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 is dead now. It's like he was the 
most pure himself human on this planet, full of something I can't describe. Like everybody's memory of him, it's like he was 100% fully himself no matter what. The thing he hated was society. Like everything that boxes us in. And he couldn't fight his brain. He, it was, it was too much for him. He was dealing with a lot, but when he was here, it's just like, it felt like he was the most alive person. And then it, he's the one who's gone. So it's almost like we're just dumb enough to stay. I mean, I'm sorry, this is getting really dark. I just mean like he felt everything so intensely and was so himself and to the point of inspiring and speaking. The reason I even thought of this was because you were saying, well, what explains love and our connection? And I brought up the dragonfly thing because I was hanging around this guy who like for sure like didn't appreciate me enough. And he like banished me to the porch. This is all weird. But I'm out on the porch thinking and I'm having a coffee. <laughs> and I'm <laughs> this took a turn. But I'm <laughs> I mean, already if someone banishes you to the porch, then I I, I would go to the porch, <laughs> but I would then continue off the porch. We learned out a of that person's um, life immediately. But <laughs> I was looking at nature, which is how I was like often connected to, to Alex. And I just, he, it felt like he came to me and I was feeling emotional. And I'm not saying he whispered in my ear, like, leave this man, <laughs> you know, but it was just like, it felt like his presence again being like, don't let this person snuff you out. Like be, it just felt like I, it felt like something I'm, I just said, I don't believe in. So I'm, I'm telling, I'm agreeing with you in that. Like what explains those things then? Is it just me and like being like my aunt and a dragonfly? Or did I really, and I was drinking a coffee from the place that he and I always went. So did I put that on it? Do you know what I mean? Did I put all that on it? And he came to me and was like, bad fit, you know, and I, I recognized it in myself from the lessons I learned from him when we were together. Or was his presence really around? Cause I mean, he always joked, like, he let, when he left this world, he sent me an email and was like, I'll haunt you, but like in the fun Casper type way. So it's like, <laughs> I, his was planned. Um, and so like who, who, I don't know how to explain it. And I'm, uh, I'm I've, I've gone off the rails. Bring me back. What did I, <laughs> I didn't answer any of your questions. Okay. So you, you you said that you have some fear of death, like, you know, that, so does that change the way you live? Because I'm always interested that if, you know, death, you know, scares you, does it have some effect on the way that you live your life? No, I'm not over here. Like, mm. right. each day like yeah. it's the last, you know, like, right. I think that I end. could seize the day a bit more and, and realize that life is precious. Um, I think, but I'm all, I'm also, I'm not over here, like not stepping on cracks in the sidewalk and, you know, risk assessment every step of my day. So I don't live in fear. Um, but I'm also not living each day. Like it's my last, 
I've provided no philosophy. <laughs> There's so much good stuff in this. Don't be silly. This is like fantastic. This has all been great. Gold from start to finish. I guarantee it. Um, we're, we're not quite finished, but we're getting towards the end. Uh, I've seen the light. I've got to finish up in a minute, guys. He says another 20. Uh, just we're about to... They're going to drop the checks, but I've still got a little bit more to go. Um, I, it's a confronting question sometimes for people, but I'd like you to answer it honestly if you could. Um, uh, what are you best at? What is your greatest strength? Hmm. I guess it splits in my mind between being like I guess broadly writing jokes being funny whether that's for tv movies or my own stand-up so it splits between that that's what I'm good at and then in my mind also goes towards a lover like making them feel seen loved heard held special those are the two things that my mind went to when you asked me what I'm good at what are you bad at what's uh I bet this comes easier. It always seems to come easier naming what you're bad at than uh, what you're good at. I'm bad at letting go of pretty much anything. I mean, that's kind of my belief in general on love and relationship. I don't practice it. I think marriage is antiquated and not right for us, and we continue to do it, and it's sort of baffling. I think we would all benefit from that old what is the old adage like people are in your life for a reason a season and a whatever i forget the third one <laughs> a reason a season and i forget the third reason and season that's all i need <laughs> and for treason it was an old thing where they used to overthrow governments so. <laughs> exactly um so but i'm of i'm i would like to think that we can have beautiful relationships exchanges with people opposite sex same sex depending what comes to you and what you're feeling at the time but i mean in a romantic way where you can have a partner and it doesn't have to be for life and i think we would all be so much more like evolved and exciting and happy if we let it happen and i'm not saying i'm even letting it happen i mean i'm not married i've never been married but this it relates to me not being able to let go and I don't know how much of it is my upbringing myself and what I've been through and 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 or society but wouldn't it be nice if people could come into your life and you experience that and enjoy it and then you're both able to say this was wonderful let's move on without legality we get willality okay sorry I was just thinking of your next show see it's not as easy as I mean, look, I've done it. I have my first album was simply the Beth. No, my second one. Yeah, I've got twenty four of them. It does haunt <laughs> me that my first ever, my first ever show didn't have a will. But that that happened from you too. So there is an outlier. There's like twenty five <laughs> pun name or twenty six pun name shows, and one that isn't like a pun name show, which is. Uh, you know, still to this day haunts me a little. I was just like, just one year away from getting that branding complete. Um, so, two more you questions. Couldn't have, you couldn't have done it if your name was like, I don't know, Sydney or something. But it's, well, that's where you are. I meant to say, like, yeah. Justin might work. Just in case. Just, but yeah, you, you got yeah, lucky just with in Will. Time. 
Oh, no, I think <laughs> just the, like it's it, it, just the Beth would be fine. Beth becomes her, you know, Beth. like there's all like death. Crystal Beth, Beth. and death rhyme, right? Oh, Crystal yeah, yeah. Beth. See, that's good. <laughs> your your new related spirits. <laughs> Beth friend. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's fine. My best friend's wedding. It's good. Like, I mean, seriously, there's like 15 specials. It's like... <laughs> um, two more questions and then um, then we're done. So the I have a magic wand. I don't, but it's a hypothetical question, you know. Um, I have a magic wand and I can give you any skill in the entire world. You don't have to do your 10,000 hours to learn how to do it. You can just magically have this skill and it can be a skill in anything, anything, anything is on the table, anything that you want to be really, really great at. What would you like to be really great at? It's interesting how unimaginative my brain went there. Like I already play cello at an elementary level, but I want to play cello like the best cello player in the world. That's what I would have you magic wand me. Mm. Just Who is the best cello player in the world? Is Yo-Yo Ma a cello player? That's about the only musician it, who plays a stringed instrument I can think of. It's been Yo-Yo Ma for the longest time. Um, mm. there, is a, there is a young man who um, played at the, what was it? Was it Harry's wedding? Harry and Meghan's wedding? Yeah. And I follow him on Instagram. His name is Sheku. I don't want to say it wrong. Kenna. Anyway, he played he played at the royal wedding. And he's like a teenager and he kind of got popular off of that and his name or his he has like an album out and everything. I don't know if he's the best in the world, but you got to be pretty good to play at the royal wedding. Just looked it up. Sheku Kenna Mason. Would you cuz like uh, you know, bands, hip-hop artists, famous for going on tour with a symphony orchestra. Is there a chance that you could do like a, you know, like stand, it's not really a thing that stand-up's really done, but you could go, like, at least with a cello, like accompanied by a cello, you and, <laughs> you and Yo-Yo could, or this young girl. Yeah, maybe me and the young man. <laughs> could, and he's like, how are you doing tonight, Beth? I'm like, I'm always <laughs> good when there's a piece of wood between my legs. Or wait, hold on. I got hard wood between my legs. Okay, you get it. Some sort of disgusting joke. He quits. <laughs> His mom is like, we're leaving. Don't talk to me and my son ever again. No, he's, he's doing the cello version of like, like you know, the drum rim shot. That's what I imagine. He's like in between jokes. Just giving him a little. <laughs> I love how I picked cello. I, yeah. It was either that or being like incredibly, just perfectly fluent in it. In, different language yeah i mean both good choices but cello i've never had anyone say the cello so i like that that's a good that's a good choice final question time machine i have a time machine um i don't just for legal reasons i need to point that out but uh, <laughs> for the for the sake of this hypothetical finishing question i have a time machine it can go forward in time it can go back in time it can go to a moment in your life you can observe it you can change it you don't have to go to a moment in your life um you don't here's the only proviso of this trip that you use it for something that you want to do you do not have to use it for the sake of humanity at all you don't need to go back and stop wars or kill hitler or do any of those sort of things i will mm -hmm. send 
the appropriate person back to do those things. This is purely for you. What would you like to do? This is hard because I'm like, my, cause you can't, right? You can't go back and change things. So you don't let your mind really go there. But of course there are times where I wish, yes, I wish I could go back in time and not date a guy that ended up being abusive or getting involved with him whatsoever. But again, it's like you don't let your mind go there because it's impossible. And I guess if I, it's not my, it's not my philosophy or anything, but I guess I've just grown to believe it, which is, I've always been thankful for the shit I've been through in my life, even from childhood because I felt like, obviously, it made me who I am. And I don't wanna shit on other people, but always felt like the kids that had it so easy growing up with were honestly the most rudderless, the most unhappy. And I felt so driven and having to make up for what I didn't have and driven by my mom and her own struggles, my sisters. It's like, yeah, I think you don't want bad things to happen to you, but Sometimes it feels like those are the best people. So in some ways, yeah, I'd like to go back and have that never happen. So I would have to freaking deal with it, but it happened. My sister, speaking of my favorite quotes I have around, sister sent me this after everything. Uh, This is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. The most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. That's one of my philosophies. It's a great way to finish. Look at that. You nailed that. You really had a great big out. Thank you very much. A very big mic drop moment. 